of all knowledge, Lord, and you love us. And Lord, the wisdom of our own minds and the wisdom of this world pales in comparison to your wisdom. Lord, so we need to hear from you. And you are our Father, and you love us, you care for us, you want the best for us. And sometimes, as a Father, you tell us to do things that we don't necessarily feel like you want to do, but you love us. And so, Lord, we come before your word to be instructed by our Father, to obey you. And in obeying you, find joy. And, Lord, to have a relationship with you is greater than any other relationship that we can have. Lord, we could have no friends, no family, no spouse, no children. But if we had you, though it would hurt to not have those things, we would have what is ultimately good for us. And that is relationship with our God. So, Lord, we come as children. We come in relationship to you, and we ask to hear from you. Help us in this time, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. years ago, in 2012, the organization, the Gospel Coalition, which I really like, thegospelcoalition.org is their website, uh, teamed up with a church in New York City, the Redeemer Presbyterian Church, to create a new catechism. Now, there are already some very good catechisms out there. The Westminster, Westminster Confession Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. So when they uh, sat together to write a new catechism, one of the things they felt like they needed to do was defend why they would need to write a new catechism when good ones existed. And so here is their response for why they came up with a new catechism. Let me say, I'm quoting, Historically, catechisms were written with at least three purposes. The first purpose was to set forth a comprehensive exposition of the gospel. Not only to explain clearly what the gospel is, but also lay out the building blocks on which the gospel is based, such as the biblical doctrines of God, of human nature, of sin, and so forth. The second purpose was to do this exposition in such a way that the heresies and errors and false beliefs of the time and culture were addressed and counteracted. The third and more pastoral purpose was to form a distinct people, a counterculture that reflects the likeness of Christ, not only in individual character, but also in the church's communal life. When looked together, these three purposes explain why a new catechism must be written. While our exposition of the gospel doctrine must be in line with the older catechisms that are true to the word, culture changes. And so do the errors, the temptations, and the challenges that we must be equipped to face and to answer. So now, if you would have asked me, like, why do catechisms exist, I think I would have been able to identify, oh, so you can train in the truth of the Gospels. But I never actually thought about the other two purposes, that we, as a people, need to be ready to give an answer to the false doctrines and heresies that enter. Well, the first reason was in the church. Heresies, false doctrines, there's things that are trying to push into the church and change the church's position on certain issues, and so we're trying to counteract those. And the third reason was countercultural. So not only are we trying to keep the purity of what the church is about, but we're trying to be a people who live differently than the culture. That we are a people who are lights shining in this world, a city on a hill, something that cannot be ignored. And so as Redwood Christian Fellowship, we're not exempt from this. I'm not saying memorize this catechism, but it kind of gives voice to the reason about why we sat down and we rewrote our statement of faith in our bylaws, just to clarify, again, the foundational truths that in historic Christianity we're on the same page as we have been for 2,000 years and even into the Old Testament for a long time. 
And then, but at the same time, there are issues that are in our culture that we need to address. So in light of that, when we also did the We Believe series, we also added a couple statements to address issues in our culture. And so that's one of the reasons that we made a statement about human sexuality. Now, the struggle with human sexuality of the issues that we're going to bring up today, in some sense, they're as old as mankind, as old as the fall. That man has always been trying to throw off what God has designed. Um, But there are specific reasons why our culture kind of arguments that our culture uses to justify their behavior. Now, I think I am stating the obvious at this point in 2015 to say that there has been kind of a cataclysmic shift in our culture. I I, I don't think that needs defending. I think we're seeing it kind of playing out. Um, The speed at which things are changing, that might surprise us, but it really shouldn't surprise us any more than a logger watching a tree fall. That if you've been hacking at the root long enough, the tree falls and with a lot of momentum. So, you know, in the 70s you had the free love, in the 80s you had um, gay activism, in the 90s you had sitcoms where sexuality was kind of one of the ha-ha-ho-hos. And, and in 2000, sorry, the millennials showed up, right? The ones that had been primed for this change. So eventually it was going to to come down. We've been heading this way for a while. So let me read first the statement that we wrote for the um, bylaws. Sexual relations are to be exercised solely within marriage. Hence, sexual activities outside of marriage referred to in the New Testament as pornea, including but not limited to adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, and pedophilia are prohibited by the teachings of the Bible. Further, levitious conduct, transgender behavior, and the creation and distribution the viewing of pornography are also contrary with the biblical witness. That is our statement. Now today I have been asked to present the biblical argument for this position. Now I hope in doing so, I mean some of you may not have heard these arguments before, so I hope that you will be informed by this. I think some of you and many of you have already been informed on this. You've already heard these arguments, but it never hurts to hear these arguments kind of condensed down Again, and kind of rehearse these in our minds, because if you're in the world, if you're sharing the gospel, these questions will come up. And so being trained, being alert, being ready with an answer um, comes from hearing and rehearsing these truths. Like a catechism, that's why they existed. To go through them every year and be ready. Now, regarding our, our culture, I mean, everybody is formed by their culture. I mean, you grow up, and there's just certain sins our culture is okay with and certain sins that we're not okay with. You know, back, um, I heard someone say, like, you know, maybe back, like, 500 years ago, if you were some Viking dude and you, like, had this sudden urge to um, go kill a bunch of people, like, it's like, that was a good urge. Like, yes, let's go kill some people. And that was okay. It was accepted by the culture. Nowadays, if you have that urge, they lock you up. Right? They don't want you doing that. So, like, certain cultures are okay with certain sins. And so some of the things that are driving the, the sexual revolution of our time, um, I think, can be categorized down into two things. The first is a statement of human autonomy, self-rule. Human autonomy is part of our individualistic culture, that the individual is more important than the collective culture. And it says, basically, that you should be able to pursue what makes you happy, so long as it doesn't hurt someone else. So you should be able to pursue what makes you happy, And no one can define for you what will make you happy. Whatever you want, you should be able to have. There should be no law telling you to not do this. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That was a poem. Invictus. It resonates with our culture. The other part, so human autonomy and psychological fulfillment. So we are kind of downwind of Sigmund Freud's and some of um, these scholars that basically argued that a flourishing and functioning and psychological well-being person is someone who is sexually active. Someone who is able to have sex whenever they want, with whoever they want, ideally with more than one person. So if you are a flourishing, functioning person, you are not, you are able to have whatever sex that you want. And so that truth has been argued from academia down to our sitcoms. 
Think about it. Every sitcom that you could turn on the TV, this idea of like these really happy people are the ones having sex. And so the Bible challenges these things, this human autonomy and the psychological fulfillment is found in sexual freedom. And so the argument I'm going to present today is going to come in three parts. First of all, God has a purpose and design for sexuality. God has a design. Number two, sin disrupts the purpose and design of that sexuality. So number three, God, through his gospel, restores it. So God had design, sin lost it, the gospel restores it. So the first thing, that God had a purpose and design for sexuality. God is the creator. He created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And like anybody who would build anything, he didn't just say, like, build something and say, I wonder what this thing's all about. I wonder how this thing works. No, he gave things purpose. He put stars in the sky to shine light, to tell the seasons. He put water and grass on the earth for a purpose. And when God created mankind, he defined what would compose mankind. In his infinite goodness and wisdom, he defined that humanity have two sexes, male and female. So Genesis 127, it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The fact that God only created two sexes, or if I should be even more specific with our culture, two genders, male and female, this is something to be celebrated. This was good. This is not something to be despised. It's something to be celebrated. And accepting the truth, accepting the way that things are that God intended it to be, that frees us to enjoy creation in the way it was to be enjoyed, and it, it does not hinder us. Now, in Genesis 2, the relationship between the man and the woman that was created in Genesis 1 is further defined, and it kind of goes like this. God created man and woman separately. So he created a man, waited a span of time, created the woman, which makes them distinct. There are distinct differences between being male and being female. And when God created the two, he did not create a male and then another male. He created two different sexes. God made Eve, the woman, out of the material of Adam. So even though that there are distinctions, there are similarities. Because Adam could say, behold, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And there was intentionality in the way that God did this because in the first part, God says that he formed Adam, but he built Eve in the language. He, he took clay like a potter and he made Adam and blew his life into Adam. And that word for formed, it's, it's something that like God formed Man and potters can form things. Humanity has the ability to form things. So God's kind of using this word. I mean, he's creating man, but it's like it's not like this high ideal. But when he built Eve, it's talking like an architect sitting there, thinking, planning, sees a hill, like, yes. Like the light shines this way, will face the windows this way, and is thinking and construction. And so it's almost like the word for God creating a woman is almost like a more beautiful word. Man, he just created you, right? Women, he built you. He was thinking and intentional and purposeful about it. I mean, both are miraculous and both have their purpose. But the woman was made to complement and complete the man. They, they fit, as it were, in every sense. Physically, emotionally, they fit. And Adam, he was lonely. Without Eve, he was a lonely person. And so when the woman showed up, he had emotional fulfillment. And physically, he was unable to reproduce, to obey that mandate, go and fill the earth and subdue it, produce offspring. He couldn't do that alone. So he needed the woman to do it. And they would act together as one flesh, as one unit. And then after God created them, God gave the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, together in marriage. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus looks on this very passage in Genesis 2. It says, yes, like, just in case you're saying, well, the word marriage didn't show up there. The word covenant didn't show up there. He wasn't saying marriage. Jesus looks back and says this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female said, therefore the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. To separate them is divorce. So this one flesh uniting is marriage. Now, sexuality and the way it's perceived, it kind of there's kind of like kind of I mean maybe broadly speaking three categories. Uh, sex is just a human appetite that needs to be fulfilled. There's nothing special about it. That's one way of looking at it. Some people say you know sex is kind of gross and you just don't want to think about it. And today it's more like self is about self-expression and happiness. So you should be able to do it. But, but the Bible tells us that sexual fulfillment and pleasure and expression, it is a good and desirable thing. And God intended it to be good and desirable. But it was given a context in which to be enjoyed. It was supposed to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. I mean, there's even a book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, kind of dedicated to the theme of marital happiness and sexual expression. Now, recently, there was a book written two years ago by Timothy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. It is a, oh, man, it's such a good book. I would recommend it if you were just thinking, wanting to think deeper about this topic. I mean, I've read, you know, I did my premarital counseling, and they made us read all these marriage books. When I was in seminary, they made us read a bunch of marriage books. And I read this book, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is, like, unlike any marriage book I've read. Because it gets down, it's not like kind of how to marriage, it's like why marriage? What is it about? And it's gospel, gospel, gospel all the way. But here, here is, um, after looking across lots of passages in scripture about sexuality within marriage, um, this is Tim Keller's summary about what God is saying. Quote, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I, com- I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And you must not use sex to say anything less. Sex is God's way for, sa- for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you, and you must not use sex to say anything less. So it is important that there is this expression of love. It is important that it happens within the context of marriage. Because you're saying physically what you've already promised emotionally. And a promise by dedicating your lives to each other. We belong to each other completely, permanently, exclusively to you. You bind yourselves to each other first, and then you seal it with your sex. Now, what the the Bible is offering, because the argument kind of goes, the Bible wants to repress your happiness. What the Bible is offering is greater joy, greater satisfaction, a sexuality that is pure and free from guilt. So what the culture is offering in terms of free sex or gay sex or adultery or pornography is at best a lousy counterfeit of what God really intended it to be. Because that is a sexuality that is about self-gratification. It's about myself most of all. Instead of what was it intended to be, which is self-giving. And something that becomes self-gratifying, it says self-giving, is ultimately self-destructive. So God had a purpose, an enjoyable purpose, but part, part two of the argument, when sin came into the world, it distorted every aspect of our humanity. When sin comes into our lives, it distorts every square inch of our humanity, including our sexuality. Now, one of the questions I think we're faced with as Christians right now regarding same-sex attraction is the question, why would God make me this way and then not allow me to act on it? Why would God give me this attraction, this affection, and not allow me to act on it? To which we would answer from Scripture, no, God created you with sexuality, which was intended for marriage the way he designed it, But sin warped it. Sin pointed it in a direction 
that was against God's purposes and design. It is sin that makes you want to take your sexuality and use it for something else that God did not intend. When sin comes in the world, when sin came into our lives, you're born with it. Imagine the solar system, now take out the sun. What do the planets do? They spin off into chaos. Okay, that's our lives. You take God out of the center of our lives, that God is not the primary being of our worship, and every aspect of our lives, in a sense, unravels, like planets flying off. Every aspect of life. So today, I mean, in some sense, like, why are Christians picking on sexuality? I don't think we are. I think the culture is. But okay, we're responding. Okay, why are we picking on it? What we're saying is, this is just one of the planets that's spinning out of control. The ultimate solution is get that sun back into place, and everything will be reordered. But we're just pointing to this. Like, and sin also destroys this thing which you cherish so much. Our desires and our passions become disordered, and the Bible says you become a slave to them. You are slaves to your sin. Jesus says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Planets spinning out of control because in your heart it is corrupt. These are what defiles a person. Now, it's really interesting when the Bible talks about sin, and we're going to read one of these lists of sin. But in general, when the Bible lists, like, sins such as, and they, and they list things, often, often. First one mentioned, sexual immorality. Second one mentioned, idolatry. Some, usually, sexual immorality and idolatry are kind of right next to each other. Because idolatry, now, come on, 21st century Americans, do we, do we have idols? Yes, right? Yes. It's the, it's the things that you desire, the things that you think would make you happy, the things that you, you know, in your free moments when you have nothing else to think about, and the things that you think about that make you happy, you can just turn into again and again, you might call those idols. The things that you, you know, when someone takes it from you, you get really upset, really upset, like, like out, of, out of proportion upset. That's a good indication of what your idols might be. To deny God as creator will lead to individual and social chaos. To deny God as creator will lead to individual and social chaos. So, okay, open your Bibles, Romans 1. Okay, I kind of feel like we've read, like as a church, we look at Romans 1 so many times we've come numb to it. But let it speak again. Let's hear what God says. Because he's gonna, God argues from idolatry to the sins of our culture. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is revealed against behaviors and attitudes categorized as ungodliness and unrighteousness. You're not acting in a way that's godly. You're not acting in a way that's righteous. People who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So it's saying that God has made it plain to us. Through his creation. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God has now been replaced. So now what's the result? Therefore, God gave them up, handed them over, gave them up to, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations 
with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their errors. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So the chaos in our lives and in our society is all due to the fact that we have replaced God as God. Now the reason why I chose this list of all the lists to talk about to bring up this idea of kind of like deviating from God's sexual design is because of Romans verse 27. A statement like, men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in the cells a due penalty for their error. The reason why, well, let me back up. In 2000, in the mid 2000s, somewhere in the 2000s, um, I remember one of the churches in Humboldt County, I think it was in Arcata, it's really here nor there, um, made kind of big splashes in our community by saying, you know what, we're going to turn to pro gay marriage. We're going to be okay with it. And they wanted kind of the world to know, and so they're letting, you know, the Time Standard know. I don't think Wasco Southwest was around yet. So, and they were getting all these interviews and making a lot of um, traction on this. I mean, many churches had already gone this way. I think the point that they're trying to make is we're changing. We used to think this, but now we don't. Now, when they did this, they pointed to this six-part blog. It was an argument where they said, we are going to make a biblical case for same-sex marriage. Okay. So I'm like, no, this is interesting. Like, I would want to know what you think was a biblical argument for same-sex marriage. And so um, basically, this was the argument of the six-part series blog. The church has been bamboozled. Okay. The church has been bamboozled by New Testament English translations. Because when you actually look into the words that we translate homosexual, like it actually doesn't mean homosexual. If you look at the cultural context, if you look at this papyrus and you look at this thing, it actually, and it, you know, the root of the word is really not, you know, and they, they, they backtrack the etymology of the word and say, well, it really means this. And, and so they went basically through and, like, verse by verse, they had the word homosexual said, this is why it actually doesn't mean homosexual in the way you think it means homosexual. But the whole time they're in that blog, they say, and it, hold on, we'll, talk, we'll address Romans 1 in a minute. Hold on, we'll address Romans 1. So they save Romans 1 for last. I wonder why. I wonder what it is about Romans 1. The problem with Romans 1 is that it doesn't have a word, homosexual. It describes the act. And so they couldn't say they meant this because it was described in plain Greek. It was explained and described. And, and so the guy could not use his little like tool like, it doesn't mean this and the word doesn't mean that. It, by the way, now having studied Greek for four years and been in seminary for a long period of time. And having done lexical studies, this guy was no serious scholar given the time of day with the way he was handling his arguments. Like, even if you disagreed with the Bible, like a good Greek scholar would disagree with the way that this guy was reinterpreting these verses, so, first of all. But when he finally gets this one and he can't use his little trump card to say this is not the word that was, you think it means, he's like, what are we going to do with Romans 1? His answer, Paul was wrong. Paul was wrong. I was like, ah, well then we've gone to the heart of the issue. Notably, he said Paul was wrong and not God was wrong. Because he didn't actually believe, the more I dug into it, that he thought that Paul's letters were scripture. He said Jesus was scripture, Paul was not. So somehow they're playing Jesus off of Paul. Like Jesus was what was really supposed to happen. He loved love. But Paul didn't. And somehow the church got bamboozled again, right? Not just by English translations, but by Paul himself. You need to get rid of him. You know, because a God of love, he would not do this to you. 
I've never found that argument fairly convincing. Why don't you ask the God of love what he thinks instead of speaking for the God of love? So when you play off Jesus, off of Paul, like say they're talking about two different things. Okay, question. What would Jesus have said on this issue? Now, the argument is Jesus never said anything against homosexuality directly, unlike Paul. See, the guy's got a problem, Paul. Okay, Jesus, he never said anything about homosexuality. Okay, that is what you call an argument from silence. Just because he didn't say anything that was written down doesn't mean he didn't say something about it. But even more importantly, it's not necessarily about what Jesus condemns as much as what he affirms. What he affirms. Because you can sit down all day, think, okay, if there's one right way and a billion wrong ways to do something, it's just easier to say, this is the way. Anything different than that is wrong. So what does Jesus affirm? Jesus affirms that marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman. He affirms that. He affirms that there's this thing called pornea, which is basically a broad category. We translate it sexual. Okay, so pornea, of course, sounds like pornography. Okay. There's a word, pornea, is the broad word. There's adultery, and then there's pornea, sexual immorality. So adultery is specifically you cheated on your wife. Pornea is like you had some type of sexual relation outside the confines of what was lawful. So you can, if you slept with your girlfriend, it's pornea. If you slept with anybody that's not your wife, it could be pornea. It's unlawful sexual interaction. He affirms that there is such a thing. And he affirms the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God clearly condemns homosexuality. And for that matter, kind of broaden it a little bit, all sexual relations outside of marriage. And I'm sorry if you think the Old Testament's barbaric. I'm sorry that you think it, the Old Testament is a backwards text, but Jesus not, does not share your appraisal of the Old Testament. Jesus obeyed the Old Testament. He delighted in the Old Testament. He saw the Old Testament as the word of God. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the Old Testament and never once criticized the Old Testament. But he criticized those who strayed from it. Now, okay, right now, you need to be careful because it's really easy to make an us-them distinction. Like, that's them, but this is us. In our culture right now, just because it seems like it's the, where the lines have been drawn, it's like pro-gay, not pro-gay. Us, them. As if, like, all this are two different segments of humanity. When, in fact, we, each of us, we are all broken sexually. No one is exempt. So be it homosexuality, or adultery, or sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or pornography, or even just harboring lusts in your heart, or inwardly enjoying a racy commercial. This all evidences that we are broken sexually. When I was attending CR years ago, uh, I had a friend, and we had a Christian club. One of my friends at the Christian club came to me and said, hey, I wanted to let you know I'm a gay Christian. That made for a very long and interesting conversation. We're still friends, and I'm, he's been, I'm really glad that God put us in each other's lives. Because we, like, well, does the Bible allow you to be a practicing gay Christian? That was the question that he and I wrestled with for years, years. One of the things, when working through some of the issues, one of the things that revealed to me was that there was actually some solidarity between him and I in our struggles. Whereas he was tempted to lust after other men, desiring sex outside of God's design, I was tempted to lust after other women, desiring sex outside of God's design. Like he had to practice celibacy. So did I. Right? Um, I mean, the, where the question pushes eventually, though, between him and I is I eventually got married. But he has no such desire to get married. So what then? We'll address that in a few minutes, what then? But the point is, solidarity, that we are all broken sexually. We all need the gospel. We are all guilty in this regard. Instead of using sex as something that would strengthen a marriage, strengthen society, strengthen our covenant bond with marriage, 
it's become something, sex has become something that has destroyed societies. That's created victims and victimizers. It's destroyed marriages. It's produced like untold unhappiness in your heart. So what then? That three, that God through his gospel restores our sexuality. We, our sexual brokenness is just evidence that, as it were, the sun was removed from our hearts, that God is not there. We worship other things and our life is in chaos. We need two things. We need forgiveness and we need freedom. We need forgiveness because the sin that takes our sexuality that we were given, which is good, that sin which takes it and turns it to ungood things, needs to be forgiven. Because we have made ourselves enemies with God when we've done that. So because of his great love with which he loved us, God sent his son to bear on the cross our guilt for sexual sin. So that we might be pure before him. As if you never failed once. In Christ, who walked with absolute sexual purity on this earth, God sees us like that. And we need freedom. Because, as the Bible says, we have been given over. We are slaves, slaves, slaves to our sin. Even if you knew that you had to change, you wouldn't. But Christ has set us free. He gives us a new nature. He gives us a new heart. He gives us new affections. Which that means that where once our hearts would misdirect sexuality towards immoral purposes, now we have hearts that desire to worship God to obey King Jesus. And because God has put his spirit in you, for the first time, you can now redirect your sexuality to the end that God intended it for it in the first place. One of the first signs of a changed heart is that sin doesn't have dominion over you anymore. You have self-control. Romans 6.12 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it reign. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves as God, as those who have been brought from life to death, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. Now notice that there's still a struggle. Present your bodies. Don't do this. You're being trained in righteousness. There's still a struggle. But what we've been called to do, the fight against turning our sexuality towards wrong purposes, we are now equipped for. Christ died to redeem us from lawlessness and produce a people for good work. So it will happen. As your appetites and as your delights are anchored ultimately in God. So, if you feel like you are addicted to sexual sin, like sexual sin has a grasp on you in some way and you cannot stop. If you are in Christ. If Christ is your Savior, if he's your Lord, you have freedom. That power of sin is broken. It was nailed to the cross. It does not have dominion over you. And your identity, who are you? I'm so-and-so and I have this issue. No, you are a child of the King. You have the Holy Spirit and his fruit grows in you. Now, what does this mean about someone? This is 
the question that we're being addressed with again and again. What about someone with homosexual attraction? You know, like I said, between me and my friend, I got married. He has not. He had a girlfriend for a while. They got engaged. But we just broke it off because he didn't feel attracted to her in that way. And they knew that it would probably just be a train wreck. They got married. By the way, he is a Christian. Absolutely sure. Now, in Christ, you have freedom. But the final, ultimate eradication with sin, when the battle is over, when you do not have to struggle anymore, that is called glorification. Glorification happens in one of two instances. You die, and you're brought to Christ, or Christ comes back, and you're redeemed. It's part of the resurrection and having resurrected bodies. But until then, we struggle with the might that God works in us. Now, if a believer struggles, a believer, a believer struggles with same-sex attraction, they do not have to be dominated by that sin. I've been saying that. But what are they saved unto? Like, God, are we saying that God is going to save you out of a lifestyle of homosexuality, like homosexual addiction, so that you'll get married in a heterosexual marriage? Like, that's the long-term implication. Like, that's what he wants for you. Not specifically and not maybe ultimately. No, sometimes, yes. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes you hear of people who God broke it. God broke it in their lives, and they felt attracted to someone of the opposite sex, they're happily married. But oftentimes it's not. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, as someone who loves God more than life, loves God more than sexual desire, you crucify yourself and say, it is better to obey God than to have this relationship. And is there suffering? Is there loneliness? Is there these desires that you wish that you could fulfill? Yes. But ultimately, you understand that you're cashing in on a greater joy. And then this could be true. I mean, what's true for my friend is also true maybe for my daughters. Maybe. I don't know. They have broken sexualities too. Or maybe they remain single their whole lives. They just never find a husband. What then? Like, so, I mean, my wife and I, we pray that our daughters will find godly husbands. But that's not the ultimate end that we want them to have. We want them ultimately to be serving Christ, loving and serving others. That above all things. Would it be a deficient expression of Christ's victory? Like, I think I'm going to be saying this, but would it be an insufficient expression of Christ's victory if someone was saved from a practicing lifestyle of homosexuality and didn't get married. No. That is not an insufficient expression of Christ's victory. Christ is still glorious. Christ was celibate. Insufficient life or a fulfilled, joyful life. He had a fulfilled and joyful life. Because marriage and sexuality within marriage ultimately point to a deeper reality. Marriage and sexuality within marriage are not ends unto themselves, but signposts pointing to a greater truth. Ephesians 5, speaking of marriage. But no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, and this is Ephesians 5, quoting Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this reality, that marriage, the sexuality with marriage, the one flesh union between a man and a wife, referring ultimately to Christ and his church, that is something you get to partake in whether or not you're married in this life you will still get to participate in the greater and deeper reality in the age to come. It'll be like skipping the appetizers when you're about to sit down to a banquet. 
So let's go to communion. Let's celebrate our freedom and our salvation. First of all, to be silent. Just not put yourself out there as a target. Or two, get angry. 
and lash back. You can do neither. Because what you're offering is greater joy, infinitely greater joy. What you need to be like is our Savior. He spoke out, and then when the people turned on him, he took the hit. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you created us. You put us in this world, a great world. It's beautiful. Lord, that there are such things as marriage and love and sexuality and friendship and serving other people, taking care of this earth, all these things, Lord, that they're good and you gave it to us, Lord. And thank you that you loved us even when we turned from you and perverted it. I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you that even though we struggle, that you've won the victory. So whatever sin plagues us or dominates us, Lord, you are stronger even still. We have Goliaths in our lives, but we have a king who will come and slay the giants for us. Lord, help us as Christians to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, to speak boldly about the joy that you offer and to be willing to take the hit when you call us to take the hit for their joy and for the exaltation of your name. May your name be loved and cherished throughout this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.